Hello, folks, and welcome to the Concora Corner, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interviews with folks working in the AEC and BPM industry. I'm one of your hosts, Graham Waldrop, a director of product here at Concora. Today on the show, we're talking with Michael Lim. Michael drives commercial excellence for his company in a hybrid sales and marketing role for building products. Lunch and learn is a term that's been thrown around for years. Have you been to a lunch and learn? What did you think of it? Did you get some lunch catered, have conversations about a product line via PowerPoint, and then talk about how maybe you're interested in the product and then call it a day? Or were you on the other end of that where you hosted a lunch and learn in a similar fashion? Well, Michael here redefines what a lunch and learn should be in this interview and talks about how he transforms it into an interactive, practical, and beneficial experience for everyone involved. I know we aren't all out there doing trade shows or lunch and learns right now, but when they come back, I'd say Michael provides the perfect blueprint on how you should approach a lunch and learn or entertaining clients in person when you're trying to sell them your building products, if that's your line of work. It's not the line of work you're in. I think there's still a lot to gain here from Michael's high-quality marketing and sales acumen. We hope you enjoyed today's interview with Michael. But before we begin, here's a quick word from our CEO, Kip Rapp. I wanted to thank everyone again for listening to our podcast. And if you're interested in knowing more about Concora, we help building product manufacturers get specified and purchase more by providing a great web experience that's bolted onto your website makes it easy for your architects, engineers, and contractors to do business online with you. Uh, We sum it up as three things. It's providing a good web experience, good content, and good tools. And we have some great tools such as submittals, sustainability, project showcases, or anything else needed by your design community to specify and purchase products. We'd be more than happy to show you a quick demo, and you can go to concord.com, C-O-N, C-O-R-A.com to learn more, read case studies, and see how other customers have grown sales with our partnership. So, hey, thanks, Michael, for joining our podcast. And again, it was, uh, I remember our last call that we had, it's probably a few weeks ago, and it's really looking forward to, gosh, your stories. And we, were, we had a really good discussion around how in your experience, you were able to creatively work with architects. And I know that's a big objective for a lot of our building material manufacturers and listeners where they have a certain way of how, obviously, if they're trying to get specced into uh, a project and in that early design phase, then having relationships and practices to work with architects is important. And, you know, and I know you mentioned you, you also have a lot of experience across the uh, design community, not only architects, and would love to share any of that. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind, Michael, if you can just introduce yourself to our listeners and who you are, what you do, what your company does, and we can go from there. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So I'm Michael, and uh, I drive commercial excellence programs and activities at a Swedish company that specializes in door and locks solution. Uh, what we will also call um, access solutions. Um, I'm originally from Singapore, but I've been working and living outside of Singapore for the past 17 years. And I've just recently relocated back to Singapore uh, after being uh, you know, in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Germany. Wow. So I, I'm sure that must have been good for you going back to your home country. Yes, it is, but it's uh, also a little bit strange. I mean, um, my family expects me to know everything about Singapore, but I'm <laughs> actually very much like a tourist, you know. And uh, things, a lot of lots of things have changed. I mean, I left um, Singapore during SARS uh, mm. and came back 
in uh, in the midst of COVID nineteen, and 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 so it's a big uh, bit uh, strange for me too. Yeah, I I, I know I, we talked a little about that, but I just kind of interested, you know, in the in the U.S. with COVID, um, we're it looks like we're getting vaccinated well, and uh, I was talking to one of our colleagues, and you know, the fifty five year older is 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 now being vaccinated, but it's it's certainly been a story and challenging. I guess last year with building material companies on the residential side, they've been doing well because of people staying at home and they want to fix up their house or go outside and all those things. So I imagine your company's doing well, but, you know, at least for Singapore, is how, how's it been going there with the COVID and has it been manageable? I, I think in the general um, scheme of things, I think Singapore government has been doing very, uh, a very relatively good job. I mean, there was a, um, uh, surge or spike in uh, cases due to um, migrant workers uh, living in dormitories, but um, all of them now have um, cleared and um, um, released from from um, from that uh, quarantine period. So things are sort of back to normal. I mean, um, although we are not allowed to be uh, gathering in groups of more than eight, but um, so far things uh, seems to be under control. The new cases are predominantly um, at, uh, import cases, returning returning Singaporeans or um, uh, uh, residents from overseas. So I think things are pretty much uh, under control. I mean, compared to the neighboring countries, I think we we are quite lucky. We still can go out and socialize. The idea here is that if you can stay at home and work, you should. Employers are encouraged to do that also. And are you? in a vaccination program in the country? Because I, I'm so sheltered in the U.S., I don't know how other countries are doing that. Yes, there is a there is plan, and it's going to go for, um, in, in terms of priorities, uh, obviously the, the, the frontline healthcare uh, gets that first, and then followed by the senior citizens, and then uh, thereafter. No, thanks for sharing that, Michael. So one thing I'm also curious about is, you, you uh, your title is customer experience or customer excellence. So could you kind of give us a, a high-level definition and mission of, of what that means for a company? So, so I, I guess the best way to explain that is uh, try to think of it um, in terms of uh, doing anything to improve the sales and marketing processes um, in, in a company that uh, helps the company to get um, or achieve uh, commercial excellence. And in, in particular, my role uh, includes uh, branding and marketing, uh, corporate communications, pricing, specification sales support, product marketing, uh, uh, CRM, uh, recurring revenue, so on and so forth. And uh, I think I think partly the reason is because our company mainly grew by acquisition. So you can imagine a lot of companies uh, that we acquire tends to be small, medium enterprise or family-owned businesses. And then uh, as they you know, get integrated to be part of the group, um, there are certain sales and marketing processes that needs to be aligned. And so that's where we come in. Um, there, are, there are also occasion, on occasions whereby we need to develop strategies to help a certain market. Uh, and that's also where my team will come in and support. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I know that's quite uh, happens at, at some of these companies where they're acquiring a lot. Yeah, it, it, it's a collaborative effort, right? Um, so so um, 
we don't have all the answers, but we work closely with our partners in the market uh, to develop the, the solutions or formulate the strategies uh, so that we can work together. And um, partly it's also if we would like to be able to uh, improve, we need to be able to measure the performance and track the, the performance, right? So we need to have a common set of uh, measurements uh, across the entities uh, in the markets. Yeah, and I know we we didn't talk about that in the prep, but that that's, I would think, a fairly interesting topic. And you can let me know if, how much you can share on that. But, you know, we'll, I'll run into a lot of uh, companies and they're either starting a new product line or they're starting a new region or they're acquiring company and they want to ensure best practice. So what in your mind is that? So you, you, as we talked before, Michael, it's a collaborative effort and, and you're, there's certainly best practices that the region or the, the, the acquired company has. And then there's also best practices that you have. And, and you talked about kind of a really nice way of measuring. So could you kind of walk us through maybe some of the more important things that get to a good place when, when either opening up a new region or a new company, new country, or uh, uh, trying to uh, incorporate a, you know, an acquired company in your, in your parent company? I think maybe, maybe in the context, right? So if let's say we are targeting architects to offer our solutions, there is really no reason for any sales entity to reinvent the wheel. Uh, some other entities who might have really uh, have something that works could easily share and say, hey, this is how we're doing it. Uh, and this is how uh, we have uh, progressed. Um, have a look at it. And uh, you might find that certain things work, certain things doesn't, but at least you don't have to start from scratch and you could also adapt it uh, quickly. And that's uh, basically the idea. You don't have to um, uh, be feeling like you are doing this alone. You can leverage on the fact that this is a multinational company uh, with presence in several markets. Um, they've gone through similar situations and challenges. They have figured out a way, have a reference on that way and see how that could help, uh, you know, without needing to, to think uh, and start from scratch. And, and that is also the speed is of an essence here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I kind of see it, what you're saying is that you're listening a lot to the companies you're working with in, in that case, and they may already have something that works well, but then on the other hand, they may not. And, you know, in some ways I kind of think of it if, if you're on a football team, right? And and you have you might have star players from other teams, but there's certainly a, a balance between them being creative and, and performing well, and then being plugged into the overall playbook and framework. So how do you tell the difference there? Well, I mean, we can't, we can't make the big assumption that all the markets are the same, but at least um, we're selling the similar products. Uh, we're offering similar services. And we would also want to make sure that there's a certain level of consistency. Uh, so, um, the idea here is you don't have to go out and look for a consultancy to help you. You could already start by looking inside and there will definitely be people who are willing to share um, and, um, and uh, explain how they did it for your reference. And you can then consider whether that's something that is interesting, relevant or practical uh, to implement quickly. 
uh, and you will never know unless you try. But now you are equipped with knowledge that at least uh, it has worked in some other markets uh, rather than to say not having it uh, worked out at all or proven in other markets before. That's great. So as you're saying, you can provide a whole army of support and advisory consultancy to your companies uh, for them to use and take uh, to um, their um, discretion. And and for me, I always kind of thought about good practices that have effectively good people and good processes that you can measure. So are there other things that you're maybe a little more uh, vocal or focused on, like from maybe a systems perspective, because, uh, you know, I, I run into, you know, one of the, I think, characteristics of a good business might be how they actually document things, right? If they're using, as you mentioned, CRM versus uh, <laughs> like email or something, right? So are there things like that? Would you, you would be a little more stronger in suggesting, or you would just be, as you pointed out, a, a support arm where you can provide any level of advisory and consultancy to your business? Um, yeah, there's, there's many possibilities, right? For example, um, how do you measure sales efficiency? Uh, is it uh, by the number of customers they've seen? Or is it by the number of deals that they have brought in? Or is it by the value of the deals that they've brought in? Uh, and uh, there is a lot of um, possibility to learn from other markets whereby um, some might work and some might not. And the idea here is that at the end of the day, how do we compare and contrast who is doing a good job or a better job? And if, let's say, we're looking for room for improvement, how do we know that um, in the same similar context, what is the potential to, to grow even further? You know, And there are contexts that you can compare and say, look, if you have X number of people uh, in, in such a market, you should be able to do an X amount of uh, uh, sales. And that's where you get a better sense rather than having nothing to compare or um, no, no element of benchmark at all. Yeah, Michael, it seems like, you know, since you kind of have this marketing and sales hybrid role, does that make it easier to interface with your products department? And what's that relationship like? Uh, it's, a, it's a metrics kind of uh, support, right? So when you, when you have um, products that you need to launch, uh, obviously you need to know who to launch, uh, two, when, uh, what, is, what are the core um, uh, proposition or differentiator, and how are you compared with uh, the competitors? What are the kind of questions that you're going to get? And like I say, um, you know, if let's say this product has been launched as a pilot in, in some markets, you could easily um, learn from that, that pilot launch and say, hey, we launched it in this market and this is what we found. We went back and did some modifications. Now we are more confident to roll this out at a wider implementation. Uh, you know, and of course, this is an ongoing process, right? So you still can continue to learn uh, and adapt as you go on. But at least there is some kind of a, a learning point whereby you, you know that it has worked for some market that you have tried at least. So do you see a lot of differences, like if you're selling one one product in one market, or do you see a lot of a lot of differences across uh, different markets when when you do that? 
Oh, definitely, because the competitive landscapes are different. Um, and in our line of work, the building codes might be different. The customer requirements might be different. Um, or the climate might be, might, might be different, right? So, so depending on that. So, yeah. So those elements are uh, useful for us to take into consideration whenever we launch new products. So it sounds like there's a lot of preparation that goes into that then in terms of if you're researching different geographical locations and things like that. Is there, is there a lot of collaboration there across your team in terms of, of how you approach different marketplaces? Yes. In fact, it starts with maybe product road mapping and, and you know, um, getting the markets to be involved right in the beginning uh, on what kind of products they need, uh, what kind of um, uh, product gaps uh, they need to fill, how can uh, we help them to make sure that they can grow even more uh, who are they competing with? What are the um, pain points that they are facing today? Uh, so those elements uh, or questions that we constantly ask would help us to just uh, feed back into the product development team and um, you know, uh, consider things uh, uh, all together. Yeah, one thing when we were talking before and we, as we alluded to earlier in the podcast is we'll have... Um, companies, they want to get spec'd early, they want to have better relationships with architects. I, I was talking to a gentleman, Michael, who, uh, this was Dean Horowitz at uh, an earlier podcast, and he, he runs a, um, a magazine, and he's very well experienced in the industry, and, and he's talking about how millennial architects or younger architects and second, early to mid-stage architects have a different way that they design and buy today. And, and, and there are things that are important. And so I know when we were talking, you, you also had some really good points of views on how to break that initial barrier in having a relationship with an architect, you know, because, you know, a lot of people that I talk to, you know, they'll get a list, they'll, they'll buy project leads, they'll do lunch and learns, you know, COVID's kind of tough, so <laughs> they can't really visit anymore. But they all have kind of varying, you know, common practices, and then you hear some very uh, differentiated practices. That I know when we were talking, you had some good experiences on in, in either uh, your current company or prior company. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of those. As we discussed, there was one that you mentioned about uh, sharing. Uh, it was uh, like with other building material companies. Yeah. So, you know, typically building materials uh, supply, suppliers would, um, you know, um, approach architect firms right, and say, hey, um, would you guys be interested in a lunch and learn session? Uh, I'm from so-and-so company and we'll be, you know, happy to come in and share um, the latest, um, you know, information about our products. Um, and usually you, you would um, have to go through the in-house librarian uh, or coordinator but this is like pretty much a hit and miss kind of um, approach, right? Because um, who knows, maybe the architect firm might have already recently had a similar session from another building material supplier and they say, no, thank you. Or they do not have any projects on hand that would um, be relevant and they say, no, thank you. Or you um, might get the wrong crowd at the lunch and learn. They could be people who are just mainly coming in during lunchtime and, and hear about what you have to say, but it might be a long while before they might you know, even need. So, so how can you then 
you know, engage uh, and make sure that you get um, your time worth uh, really talking to architects on potential projects that they might have on hand. So one possibility is um, to think about creating an environment whereby the architects um, can experience the product rather than a lunch and learn. And, and by the nature of what lunch and learn sounds like, it's basically an hour during their lunch break whereby they have to you know, leave their desk, come in for an hour, listen to what you have to say. But if they can experience your product in a much more comfortable, casual setting, um, it might leave a much more stronger impression on them. Um, say, for example, you can organize a, a trial installation of your products uh, in a nearby location and invite them to come in for, um, you know, uh, evening um, uh, drinks or finger food, you know. Um, it's very casual. It's nearby. They need to get a grab before they need to go back to the office again. Um, and, and they come, they see how it works, they experience it, and they, they, they have a much more uh, lasting impression. And the next time they, they need such a product or they need such a solution, they say, oh, I remember. I was there. I saw how it worked. Hmm, let me give them a call. Maybe we can ask them to come in for a demonstration. Or I find that personally as much more impressionable. Uh, and also it creates a very nice environment where people are more relaxed. Um, they say, hey, um, I don't have a project on hand, but I do know of someone who might. Um, let me connect you with, with that person. You know, uh, what's important is try to show the product in action where they can experience it is what I'm trying to say here. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. And it's uh, certainly seems intuitive. And I, I think with the lunch and learns, it's certainly maybe everyone's used to those and there's continuing education credits. Maybe that's one way to bribe them, I guess, to, to eat lunch with you. In your way, certainly a lot more, let's say, intimate and empathetic. However, it certainly seems more evolved, involved, right? Where you, you have to set up, maybe it's a little more expensive too. Um, so any thoughts on that? Like if, if it's like when we have a building with your company and they, and they really wanna be practical about this and say, hey, Michael, that makes a lot of sense. But it sounds like it's involved and costs a lot of money, right? This is a good question, right? So you 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 talk about um, how we can then also collaborate with other building materials, right? So in in my past um, experience, I've actually collaborated with another building material supplier, and we jointly held the event, whereby I would invite my list of architects, and they would invite their list of architects, and. If the two building materials um, products fit in the same application, it's actually even much more impactful. And you could almost imagine that for paying what you have paid, you're not only exposing to your existing list of architect contacts, but you're potentially also um, exposing yourself to new list of architect contacts, which you might not have the chance to if you did it on your own. It also leaves a much more stronger impact, a visual impact to the architect. Say, oh, okay, that's how the different things come together. Uh, and they can envision or visualize it much more better. Say, for example, you work for a lighting company that offers uh, lighting in the office environment. There are a lot of other building materials in an office environment that you can consider to collaborate with. Uh, for example, office furniture. 
And imagine having a, a trial installation or having your products shown together with office furniture. That's actually a great example whereby people come in in the evening for, for some drinks and, and finger food and they say, oh, okay, I see how this lighting and this office furniture works together. Then to say, this is our latest office furniture. <laughs> Try to imagine it in the office environment. Or this is our latest office lighting. Try to imagine that you are now in an office environment. You know, you're just getting half the job done. It's a very simple approach, but it's actually very easy uh, to, to miss this opportunity. Uh, and I, I can't imagine why um, not many people are doing it like that. Yeah, and that, that's cool. So, because I'm trying to imagine this myself as a layman, right? Because I'd say, okay, I'm a, I'm a lighting company and I, I know some really good either flooring companies or furniture companies or um, other companies, right? And so I, I work with them and then we set it up in a location. And I can imagine in your experience, is that a hotel or a warehouse or wh- where would you kind of set this up or do, do these folks already have like a place to do this? Well, it depends on where your pool of target architects are. Yeah. And, and if you know that they are all, you know, around in a similar area or they're not too far away. Um, when I say not too far away, it's a short drive or a one or two subway station away, but preferably walking distance. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, venue options. You could choose a, a hotel, a lobby, uh, uh, not those big hotels, but maybe a boutique hotels whereby, you know, it's more exclusive. Uh, you can uh, imagine also a museum. I've done one in a museum before. Um, I've done uh, uh, in uh, an exhibition space uh, also. Uh, I've done a uh, convention area. That's also possible. It was an old train station in, in, in Melbourne, I remember. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of possibility whereby it's a little bit um, uh, off-site uh, and people get excited about it. But you can also imagine um, venues that are maybe famous for um, architectural so you could uh, have um, your venue set up in a very quintessential kind of uh, old building, you know, but you bring in your products in storage there, and then they can experience an evening of the products there, you know, open space. Uh, it's a very nice environment whereby, uh, how should I say, impactful visual, okay, to see that in, in, uh, behind the, the backdrop of these buildings and architects, architectures. Um, something to think about there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I like that last part with the the architectural setting, you know, some famous place because I'm, I'm sure architects would love to go there <laughs> and see see what that is. And, and the network aspect sounds pretty cool too, where they can go there and relax and talk to other people. And, uh, and is that, I guess, similar to if we're setting up for a trade show, it's, it's kind of the same logistics. You, you bring in your kind of set and then you work with another company and they bring theirs and you kind of have this kind of ambiotic or if that's a word (laughs) kind of design and collaboration for the setup. Yeah. And the the thing here is that this is um, created in such a way that it's very exclusive by invitation. Right. So it gives a feeling that 
you know, um, whoever gets the invitation feels like they are being recognized, that they are the so-and-so in the industry, uh, that, you know, um, therefore they get the invitation. And it's important to make sure that um, these invitations are personally extended so that, you know, they are then welcome on the day itself and there is a guide to really, you know, um, bring them through the um, installations, the, the, the products, uh, and, you know, and to understand what they think, um, because then that's the opportunity for the follow-up afterwards. Usually the, the keyword is when someone say, hey, I really like what I'm seeing here. Can you and your guys fix an appointment to come into my, my firm to tell me more? And that's where you know that, okay, that's great. I've got my job done. No, but even if that's not happening, you will still get the idea that people are coming together, they're networking, their experiences. You must make sure that they have the opportunity to, to experience the product. And after that, it's just networking. And as in, I think the word here that I'm looking for is experiential. They must experience it. It's not enough to put it on the table in a typical meeting room and say, this is the product. And please look at the PowerPoint for the specs. That doesn't work here. Uh, yeah, Michael, it sounds like you approach each client differently in terms of their needs. So what kind of research goes into your process? Well, you can always look at um, if um, the particular architect firms um, have historically um, done projects that are aligned with your, your products, uh, the positioning, and um, how they um, pick their projects. Uh, that's one way. The other way is, would your products help them to be able to stand out amongst uh, the other architect firms uh, competing for a project? To put it simply, why would the architect firm or the architect choose to use your product if it's um, something that anyone can just find easily? It must have something that's aligned, that they say, hey, I really like your product. It really adds value to my project. It's what I'm looking for. Uh, and I can then show my value as an architect firm to the uh, owner uh, why we choose or specify your product. If there is no arguments put forth for the architect firm to say why they pick your product, then really you don't have a differentiator. You need to give the architect firms or the architects all this reason why they want to pick you. It could be aesthetic. It could be because it goes in seamlessly with what they are looking for, um, things like that. In, in terms of cultivating this process, was there, were there any sort of stumbling blocks or times when you potentially misfired maybe earlier in your career that helped, you know, lessons you learned to make sure that your process is as bulletproof as possible? Uh, yeah, I, I could think of one. Um, for example, you could easily just offer products whereby they they um, they could find easily um, off the shelf somewhere, right? But um, then, what's the value of you sitting in front of the architect, being there, you know, face to face in the in the consultation? There's no value. They could easily go to your website and just read about that, right? So the fact that you are sitting in front of them, you need to understand what is the key thing that they want to achieve in that particular project? What is the kind of products that you can offer that helps them to really stand out versus other architect firms in their design? 
um, what is the core element that they were very particular about that um, you need to help them to protect the design integrity. Um, those are the things to, to think about. To put things into context, if I could go back to the example of lighting, um, typically architects hate to put holes in the ceiling. So if you were to offer them lightings that needs to have holes everywhere, they say, look, this doesn't help my design. I'm, I have this beautiful design interior, and then with your lighting, I have to start making holes everywhere. Can you give me something that is more integrated, more seamless, feels like it's part of art together? That's a different level of um, uh, selling, right? Then you say, okay, I understand now. You have this design requirement. Uh, here are some other products, uh, possibility that you can consider that doesn't you know, create a, a lot of holes in the ceiling. Yeah, that's a good example. I, holes in the ceiling is not exactly what you would think of as a aesthetic design, right? So I, I and to your point though, Michael, um, in order to know the differentiation to that particular architect, uh, you know, I, I think of it one of two ways is that either you already know some of that off the bat, like your go-to, like the holes in the ceiling, for example, and you, you may be kind of listening and fishing for the ones that are important for that architect, but then on the other way, I kind of hear from folks that there are specific design problems that they may have for a particular project, and that requires time to know. So are you then, through that relationship in that kind of setting, figuring that out? or is um, there some? I, I think it all that? depends with the person that you're interacting with. I've personally been involved in meetings with architects whereby they are not interested in the product. They are interested in the effect of the product. I've also been in meetings with architects whereby they, you, you have a sample uh, on the meeting uh, table, your, your beautiful sample, right? And he's interested in what goes behind the sample and asks you to dismantle it so that he gets to see what's inside. The lesson learned here is that if you are willing to dismantle right in front of him and show him what's inside, shows that you are very confident to putting it back together, that you know your stuff, then to say, sorry, <laughs> this is not something that I can open and just show you, you know? And he feels that if you're not confident, how can he be confident of your product, you know? So it, it really depends on who you're talking to and, and checking with colleagues who have interacted with this um, person before helps. Checking the CRM on some notes will also help or kind of a question uh, to prep yourself before going in you know, uh, and making sure that you have the right people with you at the meeting to answer the question. The last thing that you want is that say, um, I'm sorry, I can't give you the answer. I'm sorry, I've come back to you. And then maybe one or twice is fine. But by the third or fourth time, he feels that you're not prepared, you know, then you're just uh, wasting his time, you know, or her time. No, that's a great point. And I, I do appreciate because there's, there's definitely a lot of similarities to just good marketing and selling, which is, be prepared, be confident, right? And yeah, there's certainly maybe some questions you can't answer, and, but if, if there's too many, then it's like, why why are you talking to me, right? Because uh, you, you, you don't know your product, right? And obviously then you don't know what I need. And I think that's a, a very good parallel. Uh, and um, when, you, when you go back to that, that really nice example you had with the very kind of elegant, uh, exclusive setting to, to invite architects, 
Um, are, are you shooting for the more the better as far as companies, or is there kind of an intimate, more intimate setting where you want to have, you certainly can't have like 300 people there, I, I would imagine, but I'm, I'm sure there's, there's some thought to that intimate and personal yeah. means that there can so, be. So this is people, all right? pre-COVID, right? So, um, so <laughs> um, in the past, there are a few things that you can consider, right? Uh, first of all, the size of the venue for, for, for safety. Um, you don't want it to be overcrowded. Um, there is also this element of the fact that they may not all come at the same time. So you need to think about, say, if you send out a hundred and uh, a hundred uh, invitation, um, chances that you might get uh, 150 turning up uh, over a period of um, three hours in the evening. Uh, you have to be prepared that what happens if there is a moment in time where 150 all are in the same space. Um, there's a way to do that is that you could um, say in your invitation, there is a presentation or a speech or a demonstration whereby they know that the beginning part of the, the evening is just networking. And then there is a third time whereby they need to come and hear that. If they miss that, okay, then the rest is the same. They can come either earlier or later. It doesn't matter. So I've seen cases whereby we say we're going to be here from 6 to 10 but um, uh, 7.30 is where we're going to share the latest result or the design trends or a demonstration, you know. And that's where people try to really come like five, ten minutes before they're going to be all there. And that's where you're, you're spiked in. And then security is going to tell you, say, hey, we have too many people inside. It's really stuffy. Can we be careful, you know, for fire exit and things like that? You have to be prepared. And I mentioned that if you send out 100 invitation, why is it 150? Because... Because it's so exclusive, there are times where people feel very happy and excited to say, can I bring a guest? Can I bring a friend? Um, and, and usually um, they are the best multiplier or ambassador to say, hey, I got invited to this event. Um, you know, I, I would like to bring you along. They become your, your voice. You know, and they will do everything to make sure that their guests have a great time too, because they are now the one who invited them. So that's actually working to our favor. If you run enough of such such events, you realize that a lot of people uh, tend to be the the people that they they know each other in the industry. So it becomes like a reunion for them, where you know on a normal day they wouldn't even have the chance to meet, and then they say, "Oh, great to see you," you know, and uh, you know we met at the last event and things like, that. and then you see. People really, really happy and sort of like a reunion. Uh, and we know each other. We used to work together and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's kind of nice to see that people are happy and finding joy in your event whereby they get to meet old friends, which uh, they would not even have the chance to if, if not for your event. So those are the things that uh, you can consider. But usually towards the end, like around nine after nine, things get a little bit quiet. Um uh, you might have a few people uh, leaving earlier. Usually maybe they need to catch a train or they have an early night, an early day the next day. Or in some cases, they say, I'm sorry, I have to go back to the office to rush some work. There are also cases like this. Yeah, I really like that reunion side of, of what you said. And I, I can see that even in my life, it's, it's really hard to um, catch up with people outside of your normal work and family and to be kind of encouraged by an event, right? Where, where you, you hit, um, you know, multiple stones of, uh, either catching up and networking and learning. And it's, it's not a, uh, kind of a drab lunch and learn, I guess, in that sense where it's, um, exclusive and you feel appreciated. So I, I think a lot of that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, and from a budget range, uh, what, what would you recommend for a listener that wants to do something like that? Is there, is there a, a range mm, that you can recommend? It depends on the venue. It depends on the rounds of um, finger food that you want to provide. Uh, and also the alcohol or the cocktail or the drinks. Um, usually you could maybe budget around uh, maximum four drinks and four rounds of uh, finger food. Um, and with the option to add more finger food um, later on, uh, you know, if um, you have more guests and they're really hungry. Um, but I have also um, encountered a case whereby I have my sales team um, colleagues around and um, we usually um, say, be prepared to bring your guests out or your, your architects' uh, contacts out if, um, you know, um, they have seen the demonstration, they're still hanging around and um, the venue is getting really crowded. Why not take the opportunity to invite them for dinner nearby, you know, uh, and, you know, um, have, a, have a follow-up discussion. And I'm sure they will really appreciate that. Um, rather than just continue to stay there. And usually you must remember there's no sitting sitting options. It's a standing around, networking, high table. So why not take the opportunity to say, hey, um, guys, can I have the pleasure to, to, to you know, invite you guys to a dinner nearby? You know, I know of a restaurant and have that discussion, you know, follow up discussion there. Yeah, I know maybe it's hard to translate, but, um, you know, in the U.S., you know, I'm thinking with the budget, is it, tens of thousands, thousands, right? That that kind of thought when, when they're preparing these type of things. Cause I know if you go to a trade show, you put out either it could be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, depending on <laughs> the size of your booth yeah. and, and how and, much. And actually, I, 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 I think the main cost is the venue rather than the, the, the F&B mm -hmm. um, because you need to be a day, a, layer, a, a day earlier to be there to set up. And um, sometimes the venue is back-to-back, uh, -back, book back-to-back, -back, that you have to immediately move out that night, the very night by midnight for the new um, uh, venue to be set up, you know, um, the next day. So in my experience, the venue cost is the biggest part. Um, the F&B is less. Um, so I can't really have a, have a good estimation because it depends on the size and also the number of guests that you really want to invite. Yeah, because I, I really think, you know, with <clears throat> COVID and, and certainly uh, it appears trade shows are what I, I talk to a lot of people that aren't in budget. So if they have budget to spend, right, and, and once COVID is over and people can talk, that might be a little more of a, a novel way to meet and uh, create relationships with architects and designers and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think, thank you for sharing that. And I guess one or two last questions before we wrap up, Michael, is, uh, is this something that also works with engineers and specifiers and other parts um, of the design community? I think in some, on some level it, it does, but in my limited interactions with engineers, um, it might not be a good impression to give that um, they're going to an evening whereby they don't get to see anything related to engineer engineering, right? It's more important that they get to see the thing in action. So maybe a visit to a live project that is operational uh, would be much more meaningful. A funny story, um, I was in Macau um, 
in uh, the Macau Tower where you can actually do bungee jumping. And they, you, I, we booked the event space downstairs uh, and, and we had uh, like, a, like a conference or seminar. And uh, we invited uh, all the maintenance manager of all the hotels in Macau. And you must remember in Macau, it's like Las Vegas, all the hotels are there, right? So the maintenance officers are there. Uh, for our engineering and, and maintenance officers are there. Um, the reason why we couldn't do it in any hotel for our event is because they would have been seen as competitor. If you had your event in, say, one particular hotel, all the maintenance manager and director or engineer department, they wouldn't come in because they would be in their uniform, because it's working hours during the daytime and they say, oh, we can't really go to that hotel because they are our competitor. So you have to find a venue that is neutral, right? So that's why we went with the Macau Tower and it's a function room where these guys, when they come, they, say, they know each other, right? Because they are all from the same industry. But then you create an environment where, where it's not so uncomfortable. And that's what I'm trying to say is they are working hours. They are come during, they're coming during their day and they need to go to a place whereby they can say, I'm going there because I'm learning something. Uh, I'm seeing something uh, rather than, um, you know, uh, an, a, a night of evening uh, entertainment and things like that. Um, uh, where less of an inspiration, but more of a practical need. It's, it's, I think it's much more uh, the point of consideration here. Well, good. Well, no, thanks for sharing that. And I uh, appreciate uh, your time, Michael, it's certainly, gosh, been uh, very uh, nuanced with certainly the examples that you gave with the offsite type of uh, creative way of being able to work with architects. And uh, definitely, hopefully, uh, our listeners can take that. And there was a lot of great parallels in there from the selling and the marketing of what you do and the commercial excellence aspects of what you do and helping your either acquired companies or, or new businesses to set up in other countries. So thank you for sharing that too. Um, and if, if anyone needs to get in touch with you or, or, or um, have any questions, how, how could they do that, Michael? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. So it's uh, LinkedIn uh, and then it's my name, Lynn Michael. So it's L-I-M-M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Well, awesome. Well, thanks again, uh, Michael, for your time. And I know it's late there <laughs> in uh, Singapore and I uh, appreciate it a lot. And Thank you for having me. And uh, I enjoyed the chat. All right, folks, that wraps us up for today's show. So you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud by searching for The Concord Corner. And if you'd like to, we'd love a rating and a short review if you listen on Apple. Any feedback is appreciated on any of our shows that are coming out and or just the show in general, or if you just want to say hello. Uh, you can find out more about Concora and our services at www.concora.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Concora LLC. We are on Twitter at Concora. And you can find us on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash company slash Concora. Thank you for listening and have a great day.